Welcome to Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. This episode is brought to you by The Complete Footballer. The Complete Footballer was created to help young players excel in all aspects of the game. With Division I college experience, strength and conditioning certifications, nutrition certifications, coaching experience, and more, their coaches are able to provide the best for their players. Training sessions consist of injury prevention and strength exercises, speed and agility, first touch, awareness, ball control, and more. Everything you need to take your game to the next level. They can also provide nutrition tips and recovery recommendations. If you mention Just for Keeps, you can get 15% off your training package when you sign up. You can find more about them at thecompletefootballer1.com. That's thecompletefootballer and the number one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. I'm your host, Carter Hockman, and joining me this week is the play-by-play voice of the New England Revolution, Brad Feldman. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Carter, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I typically start the podcast by asking people what made them want to become a goalkeeper, but I, I guess I'll have to ask you, what made you want to steer clear of playing the position growing up? I like playing out in the field, but uh, my first competitive school team, there were sort of a, there was an A and a B team, and I would play as a central midfielder or center forward um, with the A team and with the B team because I was a basketball guy and I didn't mind being in goal. I played several games in goal, and uh, I don't think I conceded a goal. It was had more to do with the sort of the quality disparity between the teams in the field than any spectacular saves I was making and periodically through the years when I played my pickup games we all had to take a turn in goal so I can at least empathize with goalkeepers although I never played at a high competitive level in goal Um, and uh, some would say that in terms of both my build and my mentality that I'm not unlike uh, goalkeepers and I'll do that without making any sort of uh, pejorative or or, uh, sort of negative uh, connotations about goalies although a lot of my striker friends do that regularly so (laughs) don't worry i I like i like goalkeepers i've always been friendly with them oh no we'll we'll get into all that stuff later but i mean talk to me about just your first experiences with soccer growing up i mean what drew you to the sport and what what made you fall in love with it Uh, there were a few inputs that really changed my view and formed my view early early on um one was that my sort of awareness of uh, team sports from a participation and spectator, uh, spectating points of view coincided with, uh, with uh, Pelé landing in, in the U.S. Uh, and my grandfather took my brother and me to a couple of Cosmos games, uh, even before they were in Giants Stadium, uh, when the, when the, the buzz was at a a fever pitch in New York. So I, you know, sort of big picture, it always looked to me like, like soccer was a big time spectator sport. And even when we moved back, you know, back to Boston from Baltimore, we spent a couple of years in Baltimore. I was a team end fan. Um, But it was also uh, more grassroots than that. The first team I was on in any sport, was in the Baltimore area, uh, an undefeated side known as the Ruxton Wizards. We had really good, like, 70s T-shirts and this weird sort of, like, gray with a 
that would take on a purplish tinge because we had those like iron on sort of velour letters and decals. We had like the picture of a wizard in the middle and we ran the table. We were 10 and 0. It was one of those leagues where when a plane went overhead, this cluster of kids would stop and stare up. You know, the kids are much better at the U8 level now than they <laughs> were then. But I, you know, I loved winning. I loved being on a team. And at the same time, uh, we lived uh, just through the woods from the uh, old University of Baltimore uh, athletic uh, complex. And they were, they, they were a Division II team. Their athletics, although the university continues uh, as an academic institution, all that sports funding now goes to uh, Coppin State, and they don't have teams anymore. But in the mid-'70s, they had a good lacrosse, credible baseball program, and their, uh, their Division II uh, uh, soccer team and soccer team won the 75 national championship. And my brother, my friends, and I used to run the lines. We used to be the ball boys for those teams. We'd go watch them practice. Uh, Pete Karinji was on that team, the head coach at UMBC, guy named Dale Roth, who was drafted by Rochester of the NASL, also a star lacrosse player, uh, Gino, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment. But, like, those guys are all still in touch. And I have them on Facebook, and I think they get a little bit of a kick out of the fact that one of the punk kids that was uh, a ball boy for those teams in 74 and 75 now works in MLS TV years later. But to see good players and – the, the thing I'll tell you about that is kind of like with the Cosmos, um, the enthusiasm. There's no cable TV back then. So this was admission-free entertainment. They would have loudspeakers blaring Casey and the Sunshine Band and Led Zeppelin. It was almost like right out of Dazed and Confused. You know what I mean? Like the, th- the, the, the smoke was thick. Uh, the party vibe was there. And the, and the fans were really into the game. Same with the... Uh, Loyola Baltimore games. It was, it, people would turn out in numbers for these college soccer games. So you combine that with the uh, buzz around the Cosmos, and it seemed to me like soccer was the greatest sport. I think it was a very atypical soccer childhood for for uh, an American kid who wasn't the son of immigrants. But Baltimore, as you probably know, Carter, is not dissimilar from St. Louis or Milwaukee in that a uh, strong Catholic town with uh, uh, Italian and, and, and German immigrants that had strong CYO programs and, and soccer was considered another one of the sports that the good athletes played. So there was status involved. The high schools, especially the parochial uh, Catholic high schools had strong programs. And then like the Greek and Italian American uh, club teams uh, fostered a culture so it was, you know, you could put uh, Fall River, New Bedford, Providence in that category too, just different ethnicities. So Baltimore was very formative. Then when we moved back to the Boston area, I lived here as a small, small kid. And, uh, you know, I was in and around the Harvard Square area where it was just an international vibe and people would play pickup games on the Cambridge Common and down at the river uh, and elsewhere. And you could go to Ninny's Corner and out of town news and get total football, world soccer, and other European soccer magazines. And I blow my allowance sometimes buying these soccer magazines in the late 70s. So um, all those different inputs led to me being a soccer guy years later. So now I've, I've thought about this a lot lately. And, and I remember the first, the first World Cup game I ever watched was the 06 final between France and Italy. And 
I mean, who could forget Gigi Buffon's performance in that final? And I've, I've told the story of the moment that I first knew I wanted to become a goalkeeper playing in-town soccer, and I think it was around first grade. But I think the, the first moment I became infatuated with goalkeepers was watching Buffon's performance in that World Cup. Do you, what was the first goalkeeping performance that you witnessed that really blew you away? Well, I know he's been a guest on, on your show, uh, and he is a former uh, announcing uh, colleague and partner of mine and a friend. Uh, Shep Messing was a childhood hero of mine. And when I went to see the Cosmos play and he was in goal for them, and there was an American guy from Long Island, just two towns away from where my father had grown up and played American football, Jewish American guy who had TV commercials. It wasn't even the performance so much as where I said, you know, that's really cool. Like that's a place where an American guy can make his name. Uh, Shep wasn't the biggest player, but he played much bigger than his size. He was brave. He flew around in goal. He had this uh, huge uh, charisma and personality uh, that stood up to, the, you know, these, you know, he had, you know, Carlos Alberto and Franz Beckenbauer in front of him and uh, Canalia and, and Pele up the park. And, and, but he, he didn't, he didn't wilt uh, in their shadow. And so I think that that is the first goalkeeper who I remember thinking like that guy's got game. He's got chutzpah. And, um, and that made the, the position cool to me. I also know my, my own moment, but what was the moment for you where you knew you wanted to commentate sports, specifically soccer? Um, I, <laughs> I, so it, it's interesting. I think the demise of the NASL combined with my particular progression as, as a, as a young amateur athlete sort of conspired. Like I was really obsessed with soccer. Like I collected Sabudio. I told you, I read about the world game. Um, the 78 and 82 world cups were really a big deal for me. Uh, the late seventies Liverpool teams, as well as Nottingham forest. And, and, you know, you would see Ipswich town, you know, these sort of, smaller teams like i remember aston villa winning the european cup in 82 and sort of like what's aston villa and i had to look up where they're from and then i became it, it, i i grew to this height probably too early to be ideal for my my athletic development because i stopped growing you know a, a skosh under six one at age 14 sort of halfway through my eighth grade year but that meant that my love for basketball sort of took over and that coincided with uh, the, the team end moving to Jacksonville and then shortly thereafter, you know, NASL going indoors and then uh, outdoor pro soccer being sort of relegated to, to semi pro. Uh, it, it was sort of semi pro plus, but, you know, I don't want to denigrate the APSL, but it certainly wasn't NASL or MLS in terms of infrastructure and, and resources. And and the, the broadcasting component all went away, as you know, there was this period from sort of the early mid eighties till the 94 world cup where it just, there was a dearth and you had to know uh, like an Irish bar or a Italian or Portuguese social club that had a C band satellite to see a lot of games. This is long before the internet was um, pumping every uh, league into everybody's uh, device and, and, and home computer and, and smart TV and so forth. And so I wasn't playing or seeing as much uh, soccer, but then you know, it, it, the 90 World Cup, I watched a lot of and I started to try to pay attention. I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years 
And I really, you could see that the Mexican American soccer culture was deeply embedded in the grassroots. And I think we went to an LA salsa game and they were APSL or USISL at that stage. I can't remember. 94 world cup. I was all in, uh, I lived in New York. I actually didn't go to a game, but I was hanging out at this Italian restaurant where the German national team uses their headquarters. I actually watched a couple of games with the guys in the restaurant there. Um, and I knew all the Italian guys who worked in the restaurant. And, and so the culture started to come back to me. All of a sudden I started collecting the magazines again, going to games and, and ethnic restaurants. And when I got into soccer broadcast, when I got into broadcasting, um, my first demo tape um, had MLS highlights on it. Um, I, when I was building a, a, a demo tape before that, I had actually done a story on a, on a third division team in New Jersey. And I knew that I wanted to make it a component of what I was doing. I will give you the shortest version I can of how I got into it. But a, a former player named Brandon Pollard who played for the Dallas Burn, now FC Dallas, was also uh, on the uh, U.S. Olympic team in 96 and played for Bruce Arena, University of Virginia, and won a national championship, at least one, with, with Bruce. Uh, he and I became friendly when I moved to North Texas to get my first general sports uh, TV job. And uh, he could see the passion I had for the game. And that when like we played hacky sack, I didn't have nearly the foot skills of, of the MLS guys, but that I, but, you know, but like I could complete a pass over 12 yards, you know, that I had the basic skills that somebody who grew up with the game, even if it wasn't their first sport would have. And that more than that, that when we went to, uh, to see games together, that I had a passion for the sport. I knew a lot of the lingo. I would go and watch training sessions, not just games. And he did a thing for me that I, I always try to call out because he paid it forward in ways that, that, that paid dividends for me, you know, just in, in multifold and in, in spades beyond what I could have ever hoped for. Just, he and his teammates wanted to see one of my uh, Friday night sports casts from uh, Texoma land, uh, an hour north of Dallas up near Oklahoma. A lot of Friday night lights, high school football, some Dallas stars, a little bit of soccer. They thought it was very funny to see me do the sportscaster voice with the sportscaster suit and tie on the sportscaster desk, you know, 2,000 miles from home in New England and New York. And um, then we all went out for the night. My wife and these uh, these guys were, you know, they were my buds back then. You know, we're going back 22, 24 years uh, to when I was much closer in age to the players. And I wasn't covering them every week. So it wasn't, it wasn't you know, an unprofessional. I show their highlights occasionally, but, it, you know, Anyway, Brandon Pollard sent my demo tape to a man called Ken Neal, who's now the coordinating or executive producer for at least four of the MLS teams around the league, has uh, performed in all kinds of roles in soccer and quietly has been one of the great builders of the, of the game. Brandon, uh, he was his representative, his agent at the time. He doesn't do that anymore, Ken, but he also used to rep players. And Ken called me up and said that he'd give me a shot on sideline with Kansas city when they came to town and it, uh, my, my station gave me the night off. Um, I totally overprepared, probably talked way too much for a sideline reporter shocker. Right. But this before <laughs> I had any filter or any knowledge of what the position entailed, but I think he saw that I, I could communicate and that I, I put the work in. He gave me, a, you know, a handful more games uh, in Dallas, New York, New England. Um, and while I was prepping for that, I, I, I got the, the satellite package, the direct kick package, and I recorded a lot of games. 
And while I was prepping, I realized that some of the guys were pretty good and really knew their onions. And some of them didn't know whether the ball was stuffed or inflated. Like they're good sportscasters maybe, but they really had no feel for the game, no knowledge of the flow of the sport, the terminology, let alone the history specifics about the players. They would prepare and learn the players. And I was watching an old throwback game from around that time on the MLS channel on Pluto TV uh, a couple weeks ago, which I just, I knew about it, but like, I didn't even know I had, you know, Pluto TV until I was looking for like the Africa cup of nations, you know? Uh, And in watching that, this particular guy who was a skillful sports announcer, but knew nothing about soccer, let alone MLS. And even his color announcer clearly wasn't an ex player or coach. Uh, And I remember hearing guys like that and saying to myself, Carter, this could be an opportunity because I was already, you know, had a foot in the door by doing these sideline games in in the 99 season. And that's when I just went all in on like training up. I just, any game I could call, I would sit in the stands at us open cup matches, um, lower division games. I used all the connections I made uh, with Kansas city, you know, uh, wizards, uh, uh, Dallas burn, Metro stars, revolution, all those, you know, guys like uh, Jurgen Manka, John Nevis, uh, um, Rob Thompson at Kansas city, like those guys really went out of their way to give me, you know, shots to call games in a broadcast booth for no money, for no broadcast. I just prepped, called into a digital voice recorder, and that's how I made my first demo and then spent the next two years trying to get jobs from there. It's, 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 it's such a journey, and, and learning things along the way is, is so pivotal, especially, you know, when you're learning to call you know, a game that so many people so, hold so closely to their hearts. It's, it's pretty incredible. Um, moving on to the, to the goalkeeping portion of it all. I mean, we're well aware of the stereotypes and we mentioned, you know, you mentioned it before and we're going to get into it. Um, uh, I mean, you know, you've, we've heard them all, you know, we're crazy, we're lazy, we're not actual soccer players, we're individualistic, you know, et cetera. From, from what you've seen as a commentator, do the stereotypes, do the stereotypes still hold in your opinion or, or have they begun to crumble? Uh, I don't think, I think, you know, starting with the, 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 the back pass rule being, you know, changed now over what, 20 years ago, I think that was the beginning of the end of the, like, they're not soccer players, right? Like you can go back to Edwin Vandersar and, and see that the sort of the keeper as a sort of, a, you know, a functional component to the build up play from teams that want to play or even teams that want to spray it long and need somebody who could play, uh, play you know, the kickouts over distance. It's been clear that, 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 so- that, that soccer skills are an important component to goalkeeping. Um, the individualist thing, I, I don't know, man, like some of the <laughs> best team guys I've ever seen, some of the best team leaders I've seen in the sport, some of the smartest soccer people I know, um, like Garth Lagerway in, in, in uh, Seattle, who's an old friend and was part of those Dallas burn teams that, that, that really helped me get into the league. You know, they're, they're goalkeepers. And so I don't buy that. I think, you know, goalkeepers will tell you they see the whole field and they, they're making tactical analysis uh, judgments throughout the game in ways that players who are in the middle of it don't have time to do, at least not during the game. You have to go back and watch video. You are, as a group, Carter, nothing personal, all mad as hatters. You're completely out of your gourds. You're, you know, you're, but 
But that's true of any sport I've been involved in, lacrosse, ice hockey. It takes a certain breed. And crazy is, is a bit glib and, and maybe reductive. I think you have to be brave. And I think that, you know, you know, they say, uh, you know, what is it? Courage is just, you know, coward is hanging on for another minute. But I also think, you know, you got to you got to be you got to be a little crazy to be as brave as you need to be to, to, you know, face up to, you know, close range shots and, and collisions and, and uh, flying elbows and, and uh, you know, punching through the ball in traffic, uh, you know, but the best, the best ones are not doing that willy nilly and just, you know, sucking it in and running through it. Like they're doing it with an intentionality and an experience that it's, you know, they, because, right. If you're just, if it's just a rush of blood to the head, you're going to miss the punch and, you know, and, and, and potentially cost your team a goal. So I actually think there's a lot more intellect and a lot more pure courage involved in the position than it is being a mental case. But I also think it works in your favor, right? If, you, if, if, if the opposing team thinks the guy between the sticks is mental, then they don't, they're less likely to do something stupid when they're up in the air in the six yard box. So, um, and I also think that you take so much abuse from the center forwards union and so forth that you got to have jokes ready and, and have your, you know, routines and superstitions. What, what I have seen is that generally speaking, goalkeepers are some of the best love teammates um, on, on, on close knit teams. And so, yeah, it's a stereotype that we want to propagate because it's funny, but the roots of it are actually, you know, that, that the sport does not function and good teams do not function without, a smart, brave goalkeeper who also has that same sort of moxie, the ability to project uh, charisma, uh, because you know, you know, gr- uh, for you know, a Shet Messing was greater than the sum of his parts, not from it, just from a stop- shot stopping ability, but also because the team wanted to play in front of him. And so, you know, is that crazy or is that just big personality? And I, I think it's more the latter when you're talking about the best goalkeepers. You do have to have a healthy mix of both. I mean, but who are, for, from your experience and who you've seen, who are some of those goalkeepers that come to mind that did such a great job of instilling that fear in the, in the opposing team? Well, so how's this? Matt Reese is one of the great guys I know in the game, you know, and he is the, uh, you know, 25th uh, anniversary team goalkeeper for the Revs, uh, club legend, huge part of those uh, teams in the mid-2000s all the way up through 2013. Also a hero on uh, you know the marathon bombing day you know uh, just really a man of of character and and uh, you know uh, and, and at this point a good, a good friend uh, he also you know became infamous notorious for that punch that that took out Aleko Eskandarian and you know didn't immediately end his career the way the the punch that that, that took out. Taylor Twelman's kind of did, but it was the same sort of thing. He tried to soldier on, and after a year or so, like the concussion uh, symptoms were just so bad that that they had to curtail their careers. And you know, I've heard mixed reports. Some people, you know, the center forwards that you talk to will tell you they thought that that uh, Reese made a dirty play on that. The way I've always seen it is that he had eyes on the ball. Uh, Aleko went in recklessly bravely um i know that at the root of it matt's a good guy and feels 
really bad about how badly Aleko Eskandarian was injured on it. At the same time, it was the way he was coached to play the position. If he hadn't gone in full-throated for that ball, um, he might have lost his starting job. And so that's the way the game is refereed. The laws of the game, you know, allow for it. Reese did get the ball with two fists before he followed through into the into uh, Eskandarian's head. It was just a very unfortunate and very aggressive play. But it also sets down a marker around the league you know, F around and find out, you know what I mean? And I think it was Chris Rawls who also took a tough one, not quite as hard a shot, but still, you know, potentially career ruinous. I don't remember how long Rolf was out, but it was not a good thing. Like Reese got more than one guy, you know, and, you know, but in both cases, it wasn't like Reese was out there at the top of the 18 head hunting and, you know, swinging first and asking questions later. He was always looking to make the decisive punch, under pressure and if a guy left his feet and was flying in with you know nothing to protect himself you know you don't say it's his fault but it's just it wasn't it was it was a no-fault situation but I I know more than one center forward around the league who said yeah Reese was dirty on those plays as they looked to me like Reese was trying to play the ball and you know the center forward was unprotected and I can't remember the outcome of the Rolf play but there's no foul called in the Eskandarian play so that's one guy who comes to mind where it was just like, and then after those two plays, I didn't see many guys like knocking over Matt Reese. They weren't stepping on his toes on, on, on uh, corner kicks or, or, or flying in elbows up anymore. It was just like, there was a sort of a radius around, around Reese. And again, like this is a person I considered a good person and not somebody who was, you know, had any sort of violent or sociopathic tendencies at all. He's just playing the, posi- the position the way he was coached and taught at the time. Yeah, I mean, Buffon and, and Matt Reese are two, were two idols of mine growing up, especially. And, and Matt Reese was, was the first goalkeeper I ever saw play up close. I think my first game ever was it was the Revs versus Houston, and I got to sit in the front row in the fort, and it was incredible. But, I mean, now the moment of truth, from knowing me, do I fit or break any of those goalkeeper stereotypes? Well, don't th- don't take this personally, Carter. But never, yes, you, you know, you're 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 an individual. You've got your own, you're the only person who's ever let us know what your half birthday is <laughs> at, at a revolution broadcast. No, no, no judgments. It's just I was like, I may notice. I was like that's I was like that was a goalkeeper play. Like that was <laughs> that was like <laughs> that 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 was just like a little bit unusual. Not bad, just different. And um, <laughs> you know, I kid because i care like yeah like you you're assertive but not in an, an overbearing way um and you don't you know you you don't cut the same physical figure as you know like a sinewy winger or you know a, you know a diminutive playmaker you have the the bearing uh both physically and in terms of the personality profile of a goalkeeper but then again you are a goalkeeper so I, I only brought up the half birthday because on my half birthday, my mom gets me sugary cereal. So it's a deal. Yeah. Um, and then you have too much of that sugary cereal. You, you act even more like a goalkeeper. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I'm not going to change for you. But <laughs> back back to uh, the the uh, the general point of things. I mean, from from like, I mean, you've, you've called the game for how many years? 20 plus years? Yeah, this will be my 22nd for the Revs. And uh, I started a couple years before that. From, from what you've watched, what separates 
the good professional goalkeepers from the great ones. Because, I mean, just about every, once you make it to the pro level, I mean, everyone has, every keeper has those intangibles. You know, they're great shot stoppers, great communicators, they're athletic, you know, all the quote unquote basics you need to make it as a pro. But what's required to make that pro stand out head and shoulders above the rest? Well, you know, it, it, you know, it sometimes it is, you know, you, you you can't always tell from like the physical profile. Like you look at Nick Romando, you know, Jersey Dudek, and you say that guy's not physically impressive or imposing. But then you see, you know, their positioning, their ability um, to make stops in a big moment. And in both those guys were both guys who had charisma for days. Um, then you look at somebody like a Brad Friedel who was just so imposing, had those long arms, but also great reflexes and hands. Um, and, you know, the, you know, people have been asking me a lot about Matt Reese. I mean, I'm not Matt Turner now because, you know, of, of all the, the noise about him going to England. And, you know, I say he's the first guy that I've seen in MLS. And there've been a lot of really good goalkeepers in MLS since Tim Howard. I was working for a station in New Jersey uh, in 99 when, you know, he was a third stringer who rose to being a starter for the Metro Stars in 99, 2000. Um, And I think I did the story in 2000 for News 12. 99 season was their terrible season. And I was I was working for a different station. But I I was one of the first, maybe the first uh, local TV stations to do a feature on on Howard in part because he was from North Jersey. So it was a local, local guy made good story, but I also saw him. Uh, I, I think it was Russell Payne and Mike Amon. They were both injured or something like his So I should get that story straight, but he played in a game and it was one of those things where I was covering it from field level. And I was just like, Holy smokes, those shots are beating him and he's still making the save. He's like, you know, he's obstructed and he's he, he, his hand eye coordination and quickness and ability to, you know, to spring off his starting position is so amazing and so quick that he's making saves that none of the other guys in the league right now would be able to make. And he, his his shot stopping ability was so pronounced and, and so noticeably better than anybody else I'd seen in MLS. It was now by then my third year, I think covering the league that I was going around saying, I was like, this guy could be pretty good. And I wasn't the only one who saw it. Not long after that, he was off to Manchester United. Right. Um, And so, you know, and I say that about Matt Turner, like here's a guy who has just like next level outlier quickness and uh, shot stopping ability and and the statistics now we didn't have you know sort of things like expected goals against you know back in the late 90s early 2000s but you know Matt Turner's ability to um, save goals and 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 those save points in the standings for his team is is better than just about anybody in MLS I think he's number one over the last five years maybe he's number two last year in the whole league and and so um those guys have something different now then they also become very intelligent goalkeepers the ability to play the position you know in terms of 
you know, playing out of the bag. I know Matt Turner takes some heat, you know, for, for his feet. But see, he, he's actually a great distributor over distance, and he's really improved his sort of basic functional distribution. I, I think it's certainly good enough. And the goalkeeper coaches I talk to think it's more than good enough for the Premier League now. Um, and he's doing great for the, for the national team. But, uh, you know, those guys have something different. You know, the Tim Howards and Matt Turners and Brad Friedel's than say a Nick Ramondo, although taking nothing away from Ramondo's bravery, athleticism, ability to cover distance for a guy who probably didn't stand more than five, nine and a quarter in his bare feet. Uh, so it, it's different things like to- Tony Miola in MLS Cup 2000, one of the memorable performances. And he was a big Husky guy. So, you know, different physical characteristics, different goalkeeper profiles, but I've seen some good ones. In, in speaking of Matt Turner, I mean, what do you remember of what was expected of him coming out of Fairfield University? And, and then I guess what was the moment you knew he was going to be a star? Well, first of all, you have to remember that the, the revolution um, during my time here have a pretty good track record of getting third string goalkeepers and backup goalkeepers to become really good starters. So Bobby, Shuttle, Bobby Shuttleworth and Brad Knight were both third stringers who ended up becoming starters in the league. Matt Reese was brought in to be the backup to a Aiden Brown. Um, so it, it wasn't the most shocking thing. I also, in talking to the goalkeeper coaches, you know, over the years, you know, whether it was a Gwen Williams um, uh, and then, you know, Remy Roy uh, and Kevin Hitchcock now is really good, you know, really smart guy about the position and you know everybody there were a lot of whispers on a lot of people's lips that that Turner had a huge upside and that you know even when he was getting loaned out to USL teams we were hearing that the guy was making highlight reel saves but he just needed experience and then in 2018 when he came back was it 2018 2017 um there was the, uh, the, the, the penalty save um, against Colorado that opened a lot of people's eyes. And so I think a lot of people knew that he was going to be a starter in MLS, whether people knew he was going to go on to be the, the number one for the U.S. national team in World Cup qualifiers. I'm not sure that that was on people's lips in 2017, 2018. But I will say this. Um, Hitchcock let me know when he first got here in 2019, he was like, this guy's really, really good. He can play anywhere and he's only going to get better. So, you know, it, it like, and I took his professional opinion seriously and it, it comported with what we were seeing uh, when we watched, when we watched the revs play, I'm not an expert on the position, but I've seen enough to know when a guy's pretty good. I mean, and at first glance and in my own humble opinion, uh, when you take a when you take an initial look at Matt Turner, you don't necessarily think of a massively intimidating figure. You know, he's not a humongous frame, but we've I mean we've 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 talked about a guy like Nick Romano and and, and the frame and figure of a, of a goalkeeper. You know, we we can throw that out the window these days. But I mean, I don't throw the word unique around a lot. But Matt Turner is is quickly becoming his own brand of goalkeeper. I mean, having watched him grow up in the broadcast booth, what is what is making him unique? Well, I, you know, he's Gumby, damn it. You know, I've said that before. You know, he just has this, like, elasticity. Um, 
and also intelligence around, you know, the way he plays angles and when he chooses to come off his line. And then if it's a great shot or um, he gets the, the angle a little wrong or the defender doesn't step the way Matt's expecting it, he has, you know, next level uh, reaction time and quickness and the coordination, you know, to, to act upon it, right? Like you can have that thought, but if you don't have the quick twitch muscles to get your hand there or your body in front of it, or even in some cases, leave your feet out and make the, 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 the drag foot save, you know, like he, he's got all those things. And I had one friend who played a goalkeeper in college who's, you know, been texting me, well, if he wants to go over there, he's going to have to hit the weights. I'm like, I'm not sure they're going to do that. Ask that of him. If they haven't already, like, why would you do anything to interfere with his cat quickness? Uh, you know, Matt has been good in traffic. He's decisive with his punching. He, he's tall enough and has long enough arms to elevate above the pack. Um, and so I don't think if he were to move that, you know, MLS pretty athletic league. There are big center backs and there's, you know, muscly center forwards. And he's already been under pressure from those kind of guys. So, again, I'm not an expert. Let me ask you, Carter, would you put him on a weight program if he were to move to the English Premier League? Not at all. I mean, one of the, you're, you said it. One of the things that, that makes him so incredible to watch is that elasticity and that reaction time. And I distinctly remember when I was, you know, I was a senior in high school and I was doing CrossFit five times a week. And my goalkeeper coach was like, Carter, your, your, feet, your feet are getting slower. Like, you need to, you need to stop with this because it's it's starting to hurt you right so if you put on like say eight pounds of muscle if that reduces your quickness even by like one or two percent again i'm not you know physiotherapist or uh, you know a a strength and conditioning guy but just say for for argument's sake that one or two percent if indeed that extra bulk did slow you down that much that could be the difference between two or three goals a season right exactly it's the difference between a fingertip save and something going, going, you know, just missing it. But, and it's, it's what works for that specific goalkeeper. And in Matt's instance, I, I don't, I don't think that he needs to change anything that he's doing and the way that he's been developing, he just needs to stay on that track. Right. But, right. And the thing is, the other thing is, is that in the rough and tumble, like muscle in most cases, isn't going to protect you. Right. Like, Exactly. You know, like the bottom line is like it's a dangerous game out there and you can't, you know, I guess you could build up your neck. But even then, like that's not something, you know, you know, and I just I think, the you know, the only thing is keep working on your on your springs, you know, but you can do that without putting on a lot of bulk with lunges and and uh, deadlifts and, and 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 sort of squats with light weights, which I'm sure he has a, a, a tailored program already for that to keep his uh his his uh hops and his springs uh, at maximum uh you know sort of um, yeah I, I i do trust the strength and conditioning coaches at the revs and i think they're doing a great job well yeah just look at look yeah look at the seasons he's had exactly yeah. i mean having having watched and studied the game for the last you know 22 years it's it's no secret that the position itself has is drastically evolved i mean my biggest oh shit moment for me it was, you know, I was playing in high school and all of a sudden I was supposed to be immaculate with my feet seemingly out of nowhere. I, I probably just wasn't paying attention. But, I mean, could you point to a moment or a specific goalkeeper? I mean, a lot of a lot of guys, and it's pretty hard to not 
point out Manuel Neuer as as being the guy. But but who or, or what moment change do you think changed the position? Well, again, I'll, I'm going to go to Vandersar even before he went to United when he was at Fulham, or maybe was it Fulham afterwards? I just remember him at Fulham, like triggering buildups over long distances. Um, that's when I noticed that there were goalkeepers with skill who could really become the 11th field player. Uh, with the revolution, it was Reese. It was when uh, the Revs went to a, a three at the back because they had Michael Parkhurst. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, it's because they had Parkhurst, they were able to play a three, but it was also because they had Reese. And Reese could come out. He played forward until he was 15 years old out in California. And he was good enough with his feet to not just get into Parkhurst, but to skip the back three and get it to you know, the fulcrum of the buildup, who was usually uh, uh, Shawry Joseph or Jeff Laurentowitz, or spray it wide um, and you know, just make plays. And he played further out of his box when the Reds were in possession. He was you know, very much a sweeper-keeper. So domestically, it was Matt Reese, because I had not seen that before in MLS. And then internationally, it was Vandersar for, for Holland, uh, Fulham, and Manchester United. And now finally, I've asked a few people this, and I want to get your opinion as well. You know, some people I know don't like the rule where a goalkeeper can dribble the ball from outside the box and pick it up inside the box, obviously not having received it as a back pass from a teammate. But this is sort of a two-part question. I mean, what's your opinion on that specific rule? And if you could change or add a rule regarding goalkeepers, what would that be? Um, I don't mind that. I, I like. I guess what I'll say is this. I don't think that rule would impact things that much at the top level. I think what would happen is that because, right, there's a finite – like there are levels, right? There are a lot of good goalkeepers around – the world but there there's a finite number of super elite ones and so if you have teams in the second tier who have a guy with a great shot stopper and all of a sudden he's not as good with his feet and he's not allowed to pick it up after that and it just creates more distance between the haves and the have nots maybe that's not a great thing i don't know maybe it leads to more goals more exciting situations i don't know i say of all the things you know they, they got enough worries with video review and the handball rule and everything i'm not going to change that i do think goalkeepers shouldn't eat as much sugary cereal i think (laughs) with the personalities they have i think you know there should be a you know certain amount of carbohydrate you can consume each day to power you through but added sugar uh the cereal is unnecessary uh, with all the healthy options out there we don't need you guys jacked through the roof on sugar when you show up at the training center Noted. I will. I'll, I'll write that one down and keep it away for for future use. But yeah, be careful on your half birthday. Yeah, in for, six, I mean, six for months. The, yeah, for the time being, I really want to thank you much for for hopping on and taking the time today. Hey, it was a lot of fun. Uh, good to talk to you as always, Carter. As always, guys. This has been yet another episode of Just for Keeps, the podcast all about goalkeepers. Thank you very much again to Brad Feldman for coming on. I've been your host, Carter Hawkman. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Just for Keeps, 